From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. Over in Scotland, the 26th Annual Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, also known as COP26, just wrapped up, and one of the takeaways from this summit is that the planet is running out of time to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. Today we're going to be talking about one of the ideas that's been talked about as a solution, a carbon tax. We'll be hearing two perspectives on carbon taxation, one on how it would work internationally and the other about the way it would play out here in the U.S., and we're going to start with the U.S. first. Sanjay Patnaik is an economist, a director at the Brookings Institution, and a fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Energy Policy at Johns Hopkins University. He spoke with Bloomberg Tax's David Hood about how and even whether a carbon tax could work in the United States. So first of all, we have to break down a little bit of what the current proposals are on the table. And so first is the infrastructure bill that was just signed uh, into law by President Biden. And when we look at the climate provisions in there, there is nothing about a carbon tax or any climate related tax in there. They do dedicate almost 50 billion US dollars for climate resilience, which I think is a really big step because um, uh, we see uh, many more extreme weather events in the United States that have a negative impact on communities across the country that cause a lot of loss and damage. And then we have the second bill, which is the reconciliation bill, which is still uh, in, under consideration, right? The latest what I've heard is that um, there, there doesn't seem to be enough senators to actually um, advance a carbon tax. Uh, but we will only know once the package actually passes. It does have a really big um, uh, a dedicated uh, chunk of money to climate, which is about $555 billion in the latest uh, uh, proposal that was put on the table. And a lot of that money will go uh, to foster renewable energies, including tax breaks for like uh, renewable energy, uh, electricity producers, for people to buy electric cars and things like that. So there we have a, an important tax angle and there can be a significant impact through these levers. But it's important that those are, uh, like I like to say, these are carrots, right? These are positive amounts of money that are being distributed to people, uh, to producers and to consumers uh, uh, in form of tax breaks. These are not a carbon tax that would actually put a price on carbon emissions. I guess taking a step back uh, for, for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, a carbon tax. Can you explain how that works? Yes, and, and that's a really interesting question because we just came off the COP26 climate conference. And so one important policy tool that countries have to actually achieve the emissions reductions that they promised is to put a price on carbon. And so we currently have about 65 jurisdictions around the world that have some sort of a carbon price either in place or being implemented or in planning. Uh, and so there is a, a good a dashboard from the World Bank. You can go to the carbon pricing dashboard that shows where we have the different programs. And so in effect, there are two ways to put a price on carbon. One way is a carbon tax. That is pretty straightforward. What that means is let's say you are a factory and you have 100 tons of CO2 emissions per year with a carbon tax of say $30 per ton, you will have to pay for each ton of CO2 emissions that you put out in the atmosphere. There is no limit on your emissions. So basically the idea from the regulatory side is because it is more expensive for you to emit now, um, the, the firm might have an incentive to try to reduce emissions. The second one, which has been a bit more popular across the world, are carbon markets um, or cap and trade. It's basically an emissions trading scheme where you, um, you have a group of firms or a group of factories and you say, look, 
you guys have a, an emissions limit, uh, 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 as an example, for next year of 100 uh, tons of CO2. The current level of emissions is 150 tons, so we want to achieve reductions of 50 tons. And then the regulator comes in and distributes these permits, emissions permits, to companies. And companies can then decide, let's say you have one firm that has emissions of 60 and only got 40 permits, should I reduce or should I trade on the market? And the effect is here that you set an emissions limit, so you can control the limit, uh, but then the price is determined by the market. Uh, thanks for the overview. I, I guess taking another step back, um, is taxation a an effective lever to curb these emissions and uh, slow down global warming and climate change? That's a really in, uh, important question, and the answer is a clear yes. So as the vast majority of economists have argued for a long time, actually the most efficient, the most cost effective and the quickest way to reduce emissions is to put a price on carbon. And that can be either in form of a carbon tax or it can be in form of, as I uh, described before, a carbon market through emissions trading. Uh, why is that the case? Because if you think about it, currently in the United States, at least, uh, unless we look in California, we are not paying for the negative effects of the carbon we put in the atmosphere, right? And so this is a clear problem of what economists call negative externality. And in order for someone to, that produces uh, carbon emissions to internalize those costs, we need to uh, put a price on that. And so that really reflects the true costs of, of your operations, either if you drive a car or if you produce something. And so that price in form of a tax or a, a carbon price on the market is actually the way that uh, most economists prefer. So if, if, Congress, if, if Congress is going to fall short of, of some of these goals, obviously the administration has its goals and, and members of Congress have their goals. Is there anything that the IRS can do without Congress's, you know, explicit authority um, in, you know, on these issues. I think um, when we look at actually what has been happening over the last 20 years in the U.S., we have seen that most of the times uh, the major climate actions have come through the agencies, right? Um, because it was so difficult to pass anything through Congress uh, on climate, uh, most of the actions happen either through the EPA or now as we are getting into new territory and the Biden administration has done re some really good things in that area through financial markets and banks, um, where for instance, the new report by the Financial Stability Oversight Committee now came out and kind of like put climate risk at the center, which I think is really critical. And that's a very important first step. And we all expect also some regulations to come through the SEC on climate disclosure and climate risk disclosure. And I think uh, the Biden administration is doing a lot of things in that area because it's a bit more under their control and especially their whole of government approach, I think is really uh, critical. I mean, just think about the IRS, right? Like thinking about what it, what climate change will mean for government revenues, right? It will have a severe impact because uh, companies will be affected by climate change. So their revenues might drop if they are subject to certain extreme weather events, right? We have the same for individuals that might be affected by that, that might lose their homes, all of their wealth. Uh, and so I think there are significant implications going forward for our tax base and for the revenue we can raise and for the expenditures we have to lay out of our budget to, to adapt to climate change. What's sort of next? What are the things that you're most watching for both on in the international arena and in the domestic uh, space? Mm -hmm. So I think on the regulatory side, I'm definitely keeping a very close eye on any carbon pricing uh, regulations that are coming out. Um, because 
uh, frankly, if we look at it, the US is behind most of the rest of the world. Uh, other countries are moving rapidly to implement a carbon price. And that means they will also have a leg up when they're trying to develop new technologies, new industries. And it's not good for the US to be a laggard in that space. And on the other hand, the other big trend that I'm looking at is really the market forces. We have seen an increased uh, push by investors to look at climate change as a risk issue and to force companies to start addressing it and analyzing it. And so uh, we see a lot of regulatory action that reinforces those trends. But I believe as, as more investors are realizing that climate change is a risk issue, it's an economic issue, that can actually move the needle quite significantly. And so that's one, one of the trends that I'm also looking at very carefully. That was the Brookings Institution's Sanjay Patnaik speaking with David Hood. Now let's move on to the global perspective. Frank Eich is an economist with the London-based consulting firm CRU. He's previously worked in the finance ministries of both Germany and the UK and also spent time at the IMF. Eich spoke with Bloomberg Tax's Michael Rappaport about how a carbon tax might play out across international borders and about the difference between a carbon tax and carbon pricing. When you have a carbon tax, you impose a price and let uh, the market find supply and demand, or you can do it the other way around. It's called a cap and trade system. Yeah, you let a certain amount of supply of carbon emissions allowances into a system, and then the market finds its own price. So it's it's two ways of achieving an increase in prices, um, and, and they they both work and they are equally popular around the world. And to talk a little bit about what was accomplished in that respect at the, the COP26 conference, conference that we just concluded. What they agree on rules for a, for a global trading market to, to, to trade emissions reduction credits. So, so this was, you're absolutely right, in 2015 at the Paris uh, COP. A country said, okay, we are now going to move to this next stage. It's the Paris Agreement. And uh, having uh, a framework on how countries can trade carbon emissions across borders was one of the major aspects which was discussed and negotiated back then. Um, they then over the last few years, five, six years, didn't manage to negotiate exactly how to do that. But at this COP, at COP26 now in Glasgow, they said, OK, we now have an idea how we want to actually do that. One problem that hasn't been addressed yet, or no, it's not a problem, but it is, uh, I think, part of the um, solution, is how to actually implement that and how to ensure that it is actually correctly enforced. So countries have agreed on the framework and how to actually, uh, what to do, the rules of the game. But they now need a global agency to actually say, you're all playing to the right rules. You mentioned before that uh, uh, carbon taxes and emissions trading are, are kind of equally in use. Does the consequence of this agreement kind of tilt things more toward toward the trading model than the tax model? Um, no, I don't think that's that's the case. Uh, they they are quite independent. I mean, one of them is about in a way, the carbon tax and the cap and trade system, they're about driving up the price. The other one is about uh, let's allocate in the most efficient way uh, the carbon allowances across countries. So that's not about driving prices. And uh, they're the two, I mean, they both of them um, are, are very, very useful and, and crucial to achieving climate change targets around the world, but they are quite independent of each other. So I don't think that carbon taxation or cap and trade is, uh, is affected by this agreement or. or what role do you see, see carbon taxes specifically playing going forward in this? So the uh, the cap and trade system, I mean, the, the EU is the biggest, uh, they, they established already in the mid-90s, the biggest 
um, emission trading scheme, and that has become ever bigger. They are they 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 just moved at the beginning of this year into what is called the phase four. So they're releasing less and less uh, of the allowances into the market. The price goes up, and the price has gone up tremendously over the last half a year. We are now uh, one ton of carbon gas emissions uh, allowance is now I think trading at sixty sixty five uh, euros. Uh, that's uh, I think seventy five eighty dollars maybe. Uh, the Global price, I think, is around three dollars. So you can see the EU is so much more expensive uh, for for emissions. Uh, China created uh, set up now um, in, in in the summer, late summer, its own uh, trading uh, scheme. They they had something on the regional level. They were dry running it for a long, long time, and now they started on a national level a scheme. And China as as the biggest uh, carbon emitter in the world, obviously, once they set up such a scheme, that could be a tremendous uh, policy uh, to to make a difference. They set their prices at the moment very low, but they now got the infrastructure to to change it if they want to. So this is now from now on its policy, and they say, okay, we want to, uh, we want to start withdrawing free allowances. We want to drive up the price, and um, I mean that's that's two two big uh, regions. Um, California has it. Uh, they they are not a, a country; they are a state in the United States, but they have one of the largest uh, global cap and trade systems and uh, they are they are popular but i mean as i said uh, earlier on uh, taxation versus cap and trade i think is equally balanced what is uh, what is implemented in, uh, in countries and regions uh, and, and re- related to all this as you know the, uh, the eu a few months ago adopted a proposal for a carbon border adjustment mechanism to to place taxes on, on, on certain imports in order to try to equalize things with countries where, where, where the regime might not be as strict and and the u.s has had discussions about this idea also what do you think CBAMs? Do they have a role to play in all this? Absolutely. If you, if you, let's say the whole world does nothing and you're the only country or region that introduces a tax. Uh, we've just seen that with the OECD organized uh, global solution to a minimum uh, corporation tax. If you increase the tax, you are worried as a country, as a government, uh, that you lose international competitiveness. Businesses will move away. They go to the cheaper location. Uh, and in order to, in a way, stop that, uh, you need to bring the prices up again so that import domestic producers and importers uh, face similar prices. That is what this border adjustment mechanism is all about. As an economist, I would say this is... At, at most, a second best solution. It really isn't very good because it's very, very complex and uh, potentially impossible to implement it in practical terms. When you import something, uh, let, let's say a European country imports something from the US, the US product will not be entirely made in the US. We have global supply chains, so some, something will come from China, something will else come from South Africa. All of these countries have different carbon regimes. It's nearly impossible to get that right. And th- and that's why uh, countries have already moved on, or international organizations have moved on and said, okay, the, the, this border adjustment mechanism is really uh, is dealing with an issue, which is a really big issue, but it's not a good way of dealing with it. Uh, there should really be a minimum global carbon price. And, uh, and a country should sign up to that. That could be different across advanced countries and emerging countries. Emerging countries probably need lower energy prices, carbon prices, because they're still developing. Um, so, but but countries should agree. Big countries, the big emitters, the ones which have which are responsible for most international trade, they should agree to set some minimum standard, which would make that adjustment mechanism at the border redundant. That was Frank Eich, an economist with CRU, speaking with Michael Rappaport. Before that, you heard Sanjay Potnik with Brookings speaking with David Hood. 
And that'll do it for today's Talking Tax. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Patrick Ambrosio is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block. And from Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thank you for listening. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.